Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Star Horse podcast. My name is Sawyer, otherwise known as Sawyerism on TikTok and Instagram. And I'm Hannah, also known as Discount Bo-Katan on TikTok, and you are watching Disney Channel. Today, we have a phenomenal guest and a dear friend of ours. Matthias, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us who you are, why you love Star Wars, and how we can find you on social media. Yes, absolutely. I'm Matthias Ward. Uh, I'm an actor. Um, I've been in a few things. Most people on TikTok and, and, and the younger crowd know me from Lab Rats as Marcus, but I've done a couple of different shows and films. Um, I am Matthias Ward, at Matthias Ward on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and pretty much everything. Um, and then, yeah, I love Star Wars. Uh, I I was shown Star Wars at a very young age, so there's really no Matthias Star Wars or without Star Wars, um, but I love it. I think it's a, a wonderful medium in which to talk about ourselves uh, and and our own society and belief system, and, and Star Wars uh, has played a key role in um, my own uh growing of morality and, and ethics and, and things like that. And um, yeah. Yeah. And on that note, let's get into the topic. So today we are talking about tropes in Star Wars, character tropes um, in particular, and how we see those like develop, shape Star Wars, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so I think we just started off by asking ourselves the question, what are character tropes? Like there are shorthand for like certain roles and things, but like, as a whole, why do we use them? What are they there for? You know, what what is this world that we're going to be getting into? Yeah, I think um, for the most part, um, character tropes is sort of a modern um, sort of definition of of archetypes, um, and archetypes developed years ago, uh, and and sort of what we what we have is the 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 um, mono or the or the hero's journey, which is what Star Wars is uh, inherently entrenched in because of the way that George Lucas based so much of of the films on the um, the mono myth, the 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 hero's journey, um, and yeah. So I mean, tropes are. are Character archetypes in general are something that we see uh, so often and um, they've become these um, monolithic figures that we immediately understand and they're, they're good. They've always been used, they work. Um, and sort of the, the, the modern conversation for the most part around character archetypes is um, uh, lies heavily with something so old being used so uh, frequently all the time in, in modern art forms. And if it's necessary uh, or if it's something that needs to be uh, subverted and changed, and that's a conversation that I'm, I'm very interested in. And um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's a, that's your, basic idea of of what character archetypes and character tropes are but no yeah. i mean i think you both as you know actors definitely have a, a completely unique and important perspective on that just because you know 
you have to take a look at your role and whether or not that applies to a specific uh, trope that um, is, has been explored and established for centuries, really. Um, and without tropes and archetypes, we would not have, you know, princess films and sci-fi films and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so it's really, it, it is quite fascinating how these kind of standardized ideas of different types of characters have withstood the test of time um, and continue to evolve. But for the most part, you know, the hero's journey is, I think, probably the best example of an archetype, just because we there's very rarely a story, even in modern times, that does not mostly follow it, um, which I think mm -hmm. is really fascinating. Yeah. And... Yeah. I was, we've come to, because like we see those stories so frequently, we come to like expect certain things out of the characters that we see there. And I, I did want to say like, because you brought up that, um, you know, as an actor, you're very familiar with your tropes because um, you are sometimes typecast and you like are supposed to know your type and um, you're supposed to put yourself into a trope and then audition for those roles. Um, and it's, you know, it's just something that's like, so prevalent in um, media, but also something that people seem to have like a negative association with. Like, well, we want to go against these and we want to um, go with them. And I guess what, what I'm hoping to figure out from you guys today is, you know, are tropes good, are tropes bad? Um, and like, do we need them? Do we not? Yeah, and I mean, I think a great way to start answering that question is to first look at, I mean, Star Wars is a perfect way to analyze this, first of all, because there's nine films and plenty of television programs as well. Um, but, it, you know, because it's such a monumental part of pop culture, I think it's a great medium, just like you said earlier, Mateus, to explore these types of concepts. So, yeah, I mean, why don't we start talking about these tropes that we have recognized and have been recognized for, you know, decades and decades and how they apply to Star Wars, how George Lucas incorporated these into his characters. Yeah, yeah, I think that the um, the default for a female character um, in like older media, you know, is damsel in distress before right. we sort of had the idea that, hey, women might be able to, you know, fit into more roles than that. Um, and, you know, Leia's existence in A New Hope itself is like almost a subversion of that trope while also sort of fulfilling it, um, which I think is really cool that right off the bat, you know, Star Wars is telling you this is not going to be necessarily what you're going where you're going to have come in and uh, expecting. Yes, we have a princess who needs to be rescued, but she's kind of like engineering the operation. Um, and then and then we've also got Padme, who, you know, I would say becomes a bit more of a damsel in distress as like the the trilogy progresses. Um, so that, you know, it, it's really interesting, though, um, and I guess unsurprising that the damsels in distress um, in Star Wars are um, the two main ones I can think of at least are women. Um, and I can't really think of a male damsel in distress who's like, who that, that is like a central part of their character. What do you guys think about that? I would say for the most part, um, I think the hero's journey is something that can be played extremely, um, uh, genderless for the most part. I think where the problem comes in is that we have so many, um, the hero's journey is inherently a journey of, a, a story of, of self-projection. You want to be the hero 
in said journey. So I think where we where we come into this idea of female um, characters being uh, pigeonholed into the damsel in distress is because who has a stranglehold on the storytelling market, and that is men, and that has always been men since the Bible, since before then. Um, so we run into this idea of if uh, men are creating stories on which they can project, which has always been the idea of storytelling, um, is, is projecting yourself into a world. That's why the character, the hero, the hero of the hero's journey starts off in a regular uh, mundane world and gets a call to action and gets uh, loyal followers and goes on a journey and saves the girl and gets the girl because that's the basic, um, what kind of everyone wants is to be a hero and escape their regular world. That's what created this medium of escapism. Um, I think where you get into things like uh, the the third installment of of the Star Wars saga in the sequels, you get an interesting look at a story where the hero that we're talking about is a woman. Um, and you see uh, a sort of unbiased look at what characters, if it's a woman, if a guy's writing it from a woman's point of view, there's not going to be a, a damsel in distress. So what could we do? We, you put a guy in that place, but then a guy doesn't want to look at themselves and see someone in distress. So they go, Oh, well, we'll give them an arc. You know, that's where you get things like the, the um, manic pixie dream girl is a classic um, misogynist trope in which um, most characters are designed to affect your lead character and change your lead character. That's the idea. Your character starts one way and through the course of the, the story, they end another way. And what happens is when you get to men who write scripts, um, for the most part, you end up with these sort of female characters that they don't quite understand and use as only a stepping stool for the the male character to get what what they want and it's 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 prevalent in in some films uh made by women and and films with uh, female leads um but it's it's definitely a majority of 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 men writing films because they don't feel that need for a female character to have an arc or to be relatable um because they have a character they can relate to which is the main character um and what's interesting there is you see sort of the hypocrisy of, of once you get a female character, the male characters, uh, and when they're written by men, which the, the, the sequels were, um, you get a female character with no damsel in distress. And what's funny is we learn how possible it is to write a good story without that character archetype. Yeah, I yeah that's say, really like, cool. is, is Kylo the damsel in distress of the sequel? Right, and, and um, yeah. I mean, it, I, I, and maybe, but when you have Ray as, you know, the hero in that particular situation, I, I can't really, I guess I can see moments of Ben where that might be a role he fits into, but for the most part, that's a story, that's an entire trilogy that doesn't have this trope and Ben right. within it. 
um, which is really interesting. So then that begs the question, is that a trope that explicitly uh, and exclusively applies to stories written by and for men? <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I will say, you know, in terms of Star Wars, they do tend to, like, even if the stories are written sort of like with men in mind and by men um, in terms of the first two trilogies, I will say, you know, they they do like a fairly good job of not making them a one note damsel in distress. There is no, you know, obviously Leia more or less saves herself. And then by the third movie of the original trilogy, um, she is sort of reverted back into that damsel in distress role a little bit when she has to come and be saved at Jabba's palace. And I'm, you know, I've been like vocally critical about what they've done with Leia um, in Return of the Jedi. But our last episode. Yeah. <laughs> but um she does you know she is the one who strangles and kills Jabba the Hutt and she is the one who you, you know she like while she does continue to sort of be put into that damsel in distress role she's never really right. only a damsel in distress what's, what's interesting about uh Return of the Jedi because I I also very much share your views on that what's also something that's interesting is the reason she got into that predicament was for saving her damsel in distress, Han Solo. And that's, that's true. Really interesting is that sort of mixing and, and matching of tropes, which I think George Lucas uh, did sort of inherently throughout Star Wars. Um, uh, and it was sort of uh, a way for him to sort of explore those in different ways. Um, and that way we get a character like Leia who kind of becomes a damsel in distress purely based on circumstance. Uh, there's not really much that she can do that say Han Solo could do. Like Han Solo couldn't get himself out of Jabba's palace, neither could she, a Jedi could. You know what I mean? Which is, which is interesting because um, it gets to a, it gets to an interesting place where yes she was put in in clothing that is so clearly staples of a damsel in distress or staples of the male gaze um and that kind of distracts from the basic idea that she's not in distress here in any really different way than our other big swashbuckling hero Han Solo is, they're both incapable of getting out of this. Uh, and they both then become damsels in distress for Luke Skywalker. Um, I really like that you say that because when we were writing this episode, we did not, we couldn't find a place that Han specifically fit in, at least not for like the traditional archetype. So I really, I really like that you said that. That's exactly why you're on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, also there's a fun place that, that Han fits in um, is uh, sort of this middle ground between um, the trickster and the changeling in old mythological uh, archetypes. And that's sort of where Han fits is this idea where uh, the changeling is mostly, um, I think historically mostly um, occupied by female characters, who is the person who is not quite to be trusted. They put on a face that makes you feel like they could be trusted. And then right the next scene, they do something that proves that they're not to be trusted. One of the biggest, you know, characters that can be put into this place, um, male characters is Loki. 
someone whose real face is never truly what you're getting. Um, and Han Solo has a great way of making you think, you know, I'm not going to help them out. I, I'm only in this for the money. And then he goes and he's got a heart and, you know, he goes right back to being how he was and then he comes back. And so he's constantly changing and challenging our hero to sort of um, come to terms with the duality of man. Uh, and that's something where I think Han has always sort of fit into is this, uh, this scoundrel who uh, really is not inherently there to be a hero or be a follower of our hero but um, is there because of circumstance. And I think that's a really interesting part of, of Han, but it's not a, a, a super specific, regularly talked about trope. So he definitely is kind of this wild card where you don't quite know. And that's what's so great about him. Yeah, I think that the, like, the reluctant hero can be considered a trope within itself um, where, you know, I mean, Han, he is constantly like, saying he's going to leave even into Empire Strikes Back. He's like, okay, I'm ready to get out of here um, at the beginning of that movie. And, um, you know, it's it's like a, a constant war at, with him of like, are you in this for yourself or for the cause? And, um, you know, the audience is never like quite one million percent sure, but there is that feeling of like, you know, he may be like a bit of a bad boy, but he's got a heart of gold. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I just... I. Yeah, for sure. And I, I really like, you know, as we're having this conversation, I'm kind of realizing basically what, through everything that you're saying, Mateus, that George Lucas was very aware of all of these tropes and did such a phenomenal job of kind of sprinkling a little of each of them into all of his characters, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but one trope that I think kind of is perpetuated throughout all three trilogies and kind of doesn't have that much wiggle room um, is the wise old man. Um, I want to talk about that one for a second because I think that we can all, one character comes to mind immediately uh, when we think about this, uh, but he's not the, Yoda's not the only one. Yeah, he's not even the original, you know, I mean, the, the original mentor character within like the, you know, traditional Joseph Campbell hero's journey structure is Obi-Wan Kenobi, but because we've seen so much of young, hot, cool Obi-Wan in like, you know, the prequel era stuff, we almost don't think of him immediately as like the mentor. It's it's Yoda, like 100% of the way for me. Really interesting, because when I, the second you said so one person comes to mind, the first person that comes to my mind was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because when I always look at uh, Star Wars, I look at the first film. I look at episode four. Um, and I started off with the, the original trilogy and it wasn't until a while later that I watched the prequels. And even after that, the one I watched the most is the original trilogy. So for me, um, Ben Kenobi, it is really interesting to me, Ben Kenobi is a wise old man to everyone else that knows him. Obi-Wan Kenobi is this young swashbuckling hero. Uh, it's always funny because you know, I think of him, you know, talking like this and everyone, everyone thinks of him as this like badass. Um, but yeah, the, the, the wise old man or the mentor uh, archetype uh, regarding Joseph Campbell's, uh, the hero's journey um, is, is a wonderful, it's the first, usually the first, um, the first, uh, 
introduction to this strange new world, which is, you know, the things beyond the moisture farm. Or for Harry Potter, it's the, the, the wizarding world. Or for, for most characters, it's this thing that they're now entering that they didn't know existed or they knew existed and weren't quite sure about it. The mentor is usually the first one that brings them into it. Um, Ray and Maz Kanata. Maz Kanata, exactly. Yeah, and also um, Han Solo is another aspect in the sequels through that. They kind of, I found that the sequels within each movie, they kind of, squished together a couple things from multiple movies. So whereas uh, Han Solo is sort of the Obi-Wan of that film, we get Yoda a lot quicker in Maz Kanata. Um, but yeah, Maz Kanata and, and is, is definitely one, probably the one throughout uh, that, that um, trilogy that, that's there. Uh, but yeah, I think um, that's a really fun archetype it's it's a classic um and it, it sort of lives there to take our hero through the first steps of the of their trials um and through their trials they learn um obi-wan takes luke through the beginning of uh a new hope until he's ready to to fight or not fight, he doesn't fight Vader in the first one, until he's ready to go through and, and do what he's meant to do. Um, and then in the second one, Yoda takes over that role and teaches him everything he needs to know before he goes and fights Vader. Um, so yeah, no, that's it's such a classic, um, probably one of the most common when you think of, of character tropes in, in storytelling. Would you say that Qui-Gon kind of serves that role for Anakin a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. And for, and for Obi-Wan on a, on a more mentor basis. But I think if, if the, the prequels are Anakin's hero's journey, sort of his well, favorite uh, hero's journey, um, even though he then comes around and finishes his hero's journey at the end of the 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 original trilogy um and honestly at the end of the sequel trilogy um that maintains it and keeps it going um yeah he's definitely Qui-Gon is absolutely the the mentor role um and that's sort of where Obi-Wan falls short and why their relationship is so strained is because Obi-Wan did not have as much knowledge and years on Anakin to fully take the role of um, the wise old man. And he tried and it became uh, sort of this idea of these two that aren't really far enough in age to justify the way that in episode two, Obi-Wan talks to him and, and it it comes off to Anakin. It comes off as this person who's treating him like an idiot, even though he knows he's not. Um, and again, one of the reasons Obi-Wan is, is one of my favorite characters is because he is someone who was put in a position to fail from the very beginning and, uh, he fails and he has to try everything in his power not to fail. And he, and he fails anyway. I mean, that's he did everything right by the Jedi code. He did everything that was supposed to be done for Anakin, you know, but it was really, 
the, where he failed was being a mentor for him as a person. He was a mentor for him as a Jedi, but not as a person. And that's what's so interesting to me about Obi-Wan uh, specifically, because he then takes the role of, of Qui-Gon. There's a great, um, the, the short story by Claudia Gray, Master and Apprentice is a great, um, a great look at uh, Qui-Gon's force ghost talking to older Obi-Wan. We get these two older mentors and the mentor is teaching the student who's now become the mentor. And it's, it's, it's a great story. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, and that's a great evolution of, I mean, Obi-Wan's got, I think, one of the best character arcs in all, all of Star Wars. Um, and, and that's why, you know, his, his inability to serve that role to Anakin um, in the prequels is why we're getting a series. Because, you know, he's got a lot of years to cover before he can get to the point where he's ready to mentor Luke. Um, and I don't think that we've seen that yet, you know. Uh, it, it's very clear that he takes quite the hit um, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, of course, and, you know, had he just didn't have the skill and the expertise and the wisdom, rather, to, to save Anakin, I suppose. Um, so I'm personally, I'm very excited for that series because I think we're going to see him kind of reflect on those mistakes and hopefully that'll give us more insight into um, how he eventually does become the wise old man. Um, but then, um, there, you know, there's another constant I think that we see in Star Wars that is uh, on a completely different track in terms of uh, vibe, so to speak, and that is comedic relief. And we cannot have Star Wars without these, you know, mm -hmm. series of characters that make Star Wars as corny as it is. No. And I would say camp, campy rather than corny, I would say. Yeah. You know, it, it's a it's a production and it's a show. And, like, they're, from the beginning, there has to be comedic relief. You know, it, it starts out with, like, um, 3PO and R2-D2 walking around in the desert, quipping at each other and bickering. And when people, like, say, you know, against um, The Last Jedi or things where, oh, there was too much humor, I was like, but that's kind of part of the recipe, isn't it? No, and I think one of the things where it comes to is humor is so subjective. Um, and while for me, when I watch The Last Jedi, every joke lands, for some people it doesn't. And we have to realize that's sort of the risk with all humor um, is that is that kind of idea that it's not quite going to hit. Um, and yeah, I mean, the humor definitely, that stems from specifically that, that scene. Um, that scene is pretty much ripped right off the pages of a... Uh, uh, Kurosawa film. I'm blanking on the name. It's what most of Star Wars is 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 based on, which in itself is based on the hero's journey. Um, but I'm completely blanking on the name. I'm a bad Star Wars fan. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that and that's such a, a constant in in Star Wars is this comedic relief, and that's mostly filled with um, with. C3PO and R2D2, but I think in one of the most, uh, one of the, the, a really fun way is it's filled with um, Chewbacca becomes sort of the, the, the a great through line um, for comedic relief. And that stems from the old uh, mythological uh, archetype of the friendly beast, which is, 
usually um, most people recognize that as uh, through a lot of princess movies, they always have an animal sidekick, which is to inherently show you that nature is on their side. Um, so there's so much of these, these fun uh, moments with the, this sort of an animal sidekick. And I would say that mostly, I mean, it's, it's Hans, uh, animal sidekick but it's his sort of reluctant hero journey that Chewbacca is a part of and pushes him towards um but yeah that's that plays a big part in the comedic relief um and and those archetypes have always played a big part in comedic relief as well yeah and then you've got um <laughs> we've got the comedic relief that we've come to expect and um then we've got the character that takes comedic relief and makes it his entire existence to the point where some people just can't watch the movie, which is, of course, Mr. Jar Jar Binks. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's, you know, George Lucas knew what he was doing putting in a comedic relief character. He was trying to appeal to kids. Um, he was putting in. Yeah, absolutely. And he, I. Love the character. And when they're when adults talk about uh, critique the character, they go, I loved him when I was a kid, but now I just can't stand him. You know, that's the point. Yeah, absolutely. And he—he's not meant for adults. You know, he—he he, his humor is potty humor, a hundred percent of the time. No, I'm very curious to think of um, where he would have gone if he wasn't sidelined. I don't know if I want to. But <laughs> with all things unknown, there's a possibility that we would have they would have created something that makes his humor important to the character and we would have realized oh you know that's obviously it had to be that way um well i mean there is this supposed theory that he was always supposed to be a sith lord i can't i can't stand it i'm sorry to everyone who's watching this uh you can understand me you can just unfollow right now i do not like that <laughs> i never have um but i actually i, I like the character i like you know, I, 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 I never had a problem with him, and that might just be because the prequels were not my introduction. I did start with the originals, but the prequels came out when I was a kid. So, you know, Render the Sith was when I was a child. So uh, I never had a problem with him. And in my adult life, when I went to the Clone Wars, I actually, I, I, I can appreciate that they took what he ended up being and just you know continued to perpetuate that through the Clone Wars but also gave him you know important roles I personally think he you know yeah he kind of literally the end of his story which most of us you know probably aren't aware of is he goes back to Naboo everyone blames him for what happens in the Empire and he literally does you know parlor tricks on the streets of Naboo for money that's the end of his story but you know during his peak he does do a lot of important things for the republic um so i i never had a moment where i was like i hate this guy i really like him but yeah, i think there's such a difference between people who it can be such a small difference the people who watch them all you know in order in chronological order but don't get the preface i mean my dad always prefaced it as he was like this is Star Wars. These are the movies that we watch because they're incredible films and they're, you know, history. These are the prequels. They were made after. They're not as good. 
they're a mess. Uh, we love them because we're Star Wars fans, but they're not necessarily good. Um, and if you don't, if you just go on there, it's just Star Wars. It just becomes a part of Star Wars. Whereas if you have that clear, like this is Star Wars, this is their little spinoff. Like <laughs> if you see it as that, um, it definitely changes your perspective, which is something that I've always had um, was this sort of uh, original trilogy supremacy like <laughs> this this like oh there's not the real you know but, but uh, even then um even in like return of the jedi there were moments that were like criticized as this is for kids the ewoks for example people hated the ewoks um when they you know first emerged um because they were comedic relief and they were like you know little teddy bears um yeah. <laughs> and it was Empire, people expected it to grow up with them and not stay with kids. I think that's where it mostly came from. But George Lucas has always said it's has been for kids. It will be for kids. It will always be for kids. You know. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting you bring up the Ewoks though, because without the Ewoks, we would not get one of, in my particular opinion, one of the best comedic scenes of Star Wars, which is three PO being this god for the Ewoks. <laughs> that, is, that is so. You know, that is a great three PO moment. I so. love it so much. <laughs> oh my gosh and i think that um the last like huge general overarching trope and mateus you've already talked about like the, the hero and the concept of the hero um i think star wars goes even further than that because i think more than the hero they've got this trope of the chosen one and how you know it's it's there's one person even if when the person is not explicitly stated to be the chosen one as anakin is the there is they are the chosen one they are the last jedi they are the only jedi they are the only person who is able to do this and that is i think a slightly different trope from like a traditional hero where it's like yeah. you've been thrust into this role um but you know it's not necessarily you're the only person who can do it um it's for star wars it's if Rey does not train to become a Jedi, then the, you know, then the resistance is screwed and the First Order reigns. If Luke does not train to become a Jedi, then no one will defeat Darth Vader. Anakin is just proposed to be the chosen one to bring about balance. Um, and there's, there's like, there is a certain amount of direness to that situation. But um, the reason that he is the chosen one is because of a prophecy, not because he's the only Jedi. So it's a little bit like different when we go from trilogy to trilogy, but you know, throughout mm -hmm. there is this total through line of like, you are the chosen one, you gotta yeah. do this. And I mean, no, and it's interesting how, yeah, go for it. Oh no, I was just gonna say that's the best way to look at it, but with this trope, which is there in every trilogy, the only one that seems to be latched onto is Anakin because he is explicitly stated to be the chosen one, but it's not, <laughs> What's so funny to me is the theory of the chosen one didn't come until the prequels. So again, and for me, who is someone who didn't watch the prequels until much later after getting getting to know and love the originals, was um, Anakin was just a, a dude. He was a student. He and Obi Wan were just. It was just Obi Wan's friend who had a kid, and it was. Luke, there was no, there was no prophecy. There was no chosen one yet, um, which personally, hot take, I like a lot better. But 
that <laughs> I, I think always... that being the chosen one is the least important part of Anakin's character. And people really like to latch onto it and like be like, well, the sequels are terrible because they undid the balance that the chosen was was supposed to bring. And I was like, why are we so fixated on that prophecy? It was never, in my opinion, that important. I, I mean, think Anakin's the, him being the chosen one, uh, its importance pretty much ends after the prequels. I don't think it's it's again it it wasn't necessary for us to feel what we did what we felt at the end of Return of the Jedi, um, and it's a really fun, really cool uh, way for him to realize the uh, hero's journey in the original and have it go become a through line, which I think is really cool storytelling wise. I don't think it's necessarily necessary, <laughs> you know, um, but. As it is, it is now canon. It is now it is part of Star Wars, so it is what we need to look at when we talk about um, this kind of stuff. But it's just interesting to me as how uh, it was added in after the fact. It was not, you know, his character arc is important because it's a character arc about someone going back and saving a person that he cares about. Like it's still important, you know. Yeah, um, but it's just you know what. I've never understood is, you know, that this criticism about the sequels, right? You know, oh, it undoes Anakin's legacy. He was the chosen, blah, blah, blah. There wasn't ever supposed to be a sequel trilogy, you know? We didn't know there was going to be sequels until Disney bought the company and was like, okay, we're going to make another set of three that goes with the Skywalker saga. You know, mm -hmm. he did fulfill his prophecy technically at the end of Return of the Jedi. And so that's fine because the prophecy never said there was going to be balance in the galaxy for the rest of ever, you know? And, and, and I don't and, like what it says thematically if it does. If what? one makes one sacrifice and the whole world goes and is okay without needing more people to make that same sacrifice, I think the idea of the hero's journey at the end, I mean, what's funny is the most important thing about the hero's journey is at the end, the character shares his story. That's the most important thing of the hero's journey is he goes on and shares it with the galaxy. It is from the beginning, from Joseph Campbell, one of the most important things. And what it does is it creates a world where that, where that can be prevented. It's a, cycle. it's a cycle. Like when we learn the hero's right. journey in literature class, it is a cycle and it's supposed to be um, constantly. And then, you know, something that I've just been thinking about sitting here is like, these same people who are so critical of Ray being a chosen one, they don't do that when they look at legends. Because there are stories that come after Return no, of the Jedi legends. that, you know, like Jaina Solo, Jason Solo, these people face big Sith threats and nobody ever says, well, they can't do that. Anakin was a chosen one. <laughs> I've stopped looking for logic in any sequel haters. Uh, <laughs> critique well, and I, I actually yeah go for it I think that the sequels contribute like a lot of really cool stuff about the chosen one thing because we have Ben who is a failed chosen one and mm -hmm. who was supposed to be the next chosen one who was carrying that legacy on his shoulders and instead was manipulated into a path of darkness and a path of you know being the thing that the chosen one needs to rise to prevent from destroying the galaxy um, we kind of get an interesting little cycle in the fact that Anakin was, you know, supposed to be an incredible person. He kind of starts off as 
being nothing, but that he doesn't get to live with that very long. He stops being, you know, a nothing, you know, a slave boy when he's however old he was in the in in episode one, and then he becomes the the important person, and everyone treats him like an important person. And if they don't treat him with a certain level of respect, it's because he's supposed to be this perfect person. And if they treat him with respect, it's because he's supposed to be this perfect person. And he fails at being a perfect person, being that kind of a hero. He, he really fails at being a hero. Then you have Luke, who for a very long time in his life was told he was nothing. He's nothing important, right? And then he becomes a hero. Then the next person who's told they're supposed to be a hero is Ben Solo, and he is unable to become a hero. Then you go back and you have another character, Ray, who is told they're nothing through their whole life and they become a hero. You know what I mean? If you believe that you are owed this right to be important, you won't really be able to become important, you know? Or important in the wrong way. Right, right become a, a hero you know you're if you're told you're supposed to bring balance it'll be very hard to, for you to bring balance if you're told that you're not going to be able to bring balance you're going to work to bring balance you know what i mean that was something that is 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 really cool and again you have ben solo who is this character who by all means should be a happy wonderful hero and because they had this idea that this perfect skywalker was to be born they didn't treat him accordingly. They didn't treat him like a person. And that was where they failed. That was where Luke failed. The same way where Obi-Wan failed, you know, and the rest yeah. of the Well, yeah, and speaking of that, you know, the role that he was put into, um, not only is it the chosen one, there's also this overarching, like, idea of what a Jedi is meant to be and what a Jedi can and cannot be. And I think this is where we get into um, the tropes that, were invented, sort of invented by Star Wars and what we come to yeah. expect when we walk into a Star Wars movie. We have an idea of what a Jedi is and the Jedi Council has an idea of what a Jedi is. And, um, you know, occasionally those are in some kind of contrast, but I think going off of like the, the OG, what is a Jedi, um, we have to look at Luke and like, you know, what did he establish in terms of what is a Jedi from, from the original trilogy? Yeah, I mean, so, and I, I kind of, I, I kind of came up with this question because I think that this is a very Star Wars specific thing, not to say that other fandoms uh, and, and series don't contribute their own trope um, to pop culture, but, you know, when we have, you know, when we watched the originals, and for most people who did start the Star Wars fandom with the originals, you know, we have Obi-Wan and we have Luke who is you know represents this hero this person who is bringing balance to the force who is you know all that is well and good for the most part who still has his own struggles but you know that is what we perceive to be a Jedi we might look at Yoda a bit and go okay well maybe the Jedis don't age very well um, but you know even then you know we we went and, and the people who grew up with the originals they went into the prequels with this idea of what a jedi was and then we are met with the jedi council who has a lot of issues um yeah so i i just uh i just think that's so interesting how this particular series 
has that power over not just the Jedi, but lots of different roles that they've created for themselves and how that affects the fans and, you know, um, and how these tropes have evolved. Well, it's, it's really interesting to me, this idea of it is really important that we look at the prequels as very clearly what when we were met with what a Jedi was originally, it was Luke Skywalker. It was what he became was a sort of perfect idea of um, stoic, uh, peaceful, um, smart peacekeeping. That was the idea of it. We go back and we see the prequels, which introduce us to this Jedi, these Jedi who have kind of taken the original idea of being a Jedi and twisted it into this political game, this, you know, we are the greatest thing that ever was. They are so confident in themselves and what they do. They can never be questioned. They can never, if they, if it's, if it comes from them, if it comes from them, it must come from the force. It must mean that it's, you know, they are basically speaking to the universe and obviously whatever they say will be right. I think people forget, and especially people who grew up with the prequels forget that that version of the Jedi were introduced to be wrong. It was introduced as something that was flawed. In episode uh, five, Yoda says, wars do not make one great. And then everyone sees Yoda fighting wars and they're like, why was Yoda so cool? And then he grew up and he was all, you know, a little hermit. It's because he realized that all those things that you loved swinging a lightsaber around has nothing to do with what it means to be a Jedi. And I think the people who grew up with the prequels without being able to sort of see the, the contrast and what time does sort of miss the point of those original Jedi is they're great at what they do, but is what they do right. And that's something with the Jedi that's crazy is sort of realizing that they were wrong. The Jedi were wrong. They shouldn't have acted the way they did. We're seeing that now with the High Republic, where you start to see, you know, this amazing creation. You already see the groundwork of once someone basically states that they are the holiest of things, there's a fall that happens there. And there's this sort of, again, you tell someone they're supposed to be all good and they'll mess it up, you know? And so, uh, but with the High Republic, like, it's so interesting that, I mean, for me, and I assume a lot of other people who have given this series a chance, it was refreshing to me to read Light of the Jedi and have these Jedi, you know, I latched on to that original idea of what a Jedi was. And I was so happy that we have all these Qui-Gons running around, uh, you know, being what I think a Jedi is supposed to be. So, um, I mean, Once again, they're, they're protecting what they love, not fighting what they hate. We're, interest, we're introduced to the Jedi and the High Republic as peacekeepers. They go and they rescue people from a natural disaster. Um, people created this sort of idea that they need, you know, to be fighting against something. And no, that is not what makes you great is, is the fight. Luke, Luke Skywalker reaches peak Jedi-hood by throwing down his lightsaber. That's the ending of the big original series you know that's what he does that is right mm -hmm. uh, and of i think family, that you need to finish that book yeah i know I'm <laughs> <from> you. Um, <laughs> but i was gonna say i think that um the uh you know the misconception of like what a jedi truly is is not only prevalent 
within the fandom and within um, people who watch Star Wars, but within the universe of Star Wars and people who have expectations for what um, the Jedi are meant to be. And we kind of see it a lot of the time from the perspective of the Jedi. But then, and, you know, I think that this is sort of an underrated arc of the Clone Wars. The Martez sisters provide like sort of a, a, a different perspective on how the world sees the Jedi. They had their life ruined by Luminara, who basically said, I'm so sorry, but it's the will of the force. Good luck with your life. And, you know, you know, it, it fucked off. So it was, it was the, um, it, it's just that now that we are getting into the sequel era and into more um, angles on like what people think of the Jedi in universe, we are getting a more fleshed out view of like, what are the misconceptions and, you know, experiences of the people who are not the Jedi. Um, there's, you know, people in the sequel era think Luke is a myth. Um, people think that Luke was... Rey has all these misconceptions going into The Last Jedi about what Luke is going to be. And then she is met with exactly what she doesn't want. Um, and Which that, I think... Really interestingly mirrors Yoda and Luke. Luke goes seeking this epic warrior to find a pacifist. That's mm. what... That's what's incredible about it. He finds someone who doesn't want to teach him, who, need, who Yoda says, like, he's not ready. I can't train him. Luke says, she's not ready. I can't train her. You know, we get this same story, which, again, is, is what Star Wars is. It's this sort of rehashing of, of things and, and these tropes and these um, archetypes and, and moments in time that reinvent themselves and find new ways to be created. Um, and I think that's something that's so incredible with what Luke brings in The Last Jedi when he basically says, no, I've practiced all that there is to practice about Jedi. I've learned everything there is to know, and it's wrong. Yoda says the same thing. They were wrong. You know, that's something that's so uh, incredible. And, and you get someone like Obi-Wan who's still holding on to that and sends him to go be trained by by Yoda thinking like, oh, he has to be a Jedi. And at the end, I mean, the whole time Luke is doing everything they tell him not to. And that's what saves the day, you know, because you do need to think with emotion. You do need to, like their importance, that is where the Jedi were wrong. I mean, they're, they're saying there is no emotion, there is only peace. There's no peace without emotion. That's sort of the wonderful thing that makes people human. And that's what Luke brought, which I think they did a great job of, of being that in the end. I don't think, I think it would have been more out of character for Luke to create the Jedi Order and agree, to recreate the Jedi Order and agree with it. Because the Jedi Order was wrong. They're not, it's, a, it's an ineffective peacekeeping force because it didn't stay a peacekeeping force. It became an army. It became a, a sledgehammer onto the, you know, lower class. It became this sort of insane creation of, of violence when it was meant to create peace. Um, and that what I think, that's what I think Luke and Yoda are fighting against. Um, and what I hope in in my mind i think that's 
what Rey learned from Luke in The Last Jedi. I don't think when she goes to create her new Jedi Order, she's going to fall in the exact same traps. I think we're going to get something different because Luke being ever so um, impulsive and yet kind of insecure in what he believes just ended up following what they originally wanted, what the original Jedi were supposed to be and didn't think, man, maybe there was a reason why this failed the first time and it failed. Um, And yeah, I think that was sort of in direct, you know, reply to this idea where people equate Jedi with good. When they're not, they equate the light side with good uh, and the absence of the dark is good. And there's sort of this area of, you know, uh, considering other ways and not, you don't need to follow. You don't need to fall to the dark. You don't need to fully go to, to go there, but you do have to consider other people's emotions. Um, as Anakin says, I mean, we're forbidden from love, but not the love of other people. We have to maintain the love of other people that stops. They, they kind of fail at that. Um, and that was sort of Anakin's idealism going in. And uh, that's where he butts heads with the Jedi is in this sort of absence of, again, you, you, you create rules. They'll, they'll want to be broken, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, on the other side of the coin, we've got like sort of an idea of what is, we as an audience, I think, have this idea um, more so than like the world of Star Wars. Um, But I I would say a a little bit um, the world of Star Wars as well. What is the Sith? What what is a Sith? What is the Darksider? Who is that person? And what can and can't they do? Because, you know, we're first introduced to Vader as our main Sith, but then we get an introduction into, hey, he's actually not the head honcho. He's got a boss. Um, and th- we have such ideas about what that is and isn't, like, allowed to be um, in terms of just based off of, like, we can have either a conflicted one or we can have a fully evil one. And that's about it. Um, so that it, it almost set up this trap, that, that way of thinking set up this trap of when Kylo rejected Rey's, um, you know, join me and deflected back at a no, you join me mm-hmm. at, towards the end of The Last Jedi. I think that led a lot of people into the trap of thinking, okay, his choice is made. That's if he's not going to be conflicted, he's not going to be conflicted, you know? Um, I think there's so much of, of, um, of the Sith that is, to me, it's mostly kind of reliant on selfishness. It kind of is the embodiment of selfishness. Um, I think, I think again, the Jedi looked at it wrong, which is, you know, fear leads to hate, hate leads to anger, anger leads to suffering. Um, all of those things can exist, but you have to, I mean, just thematically on open scale, thinking about, you know, letting your emotional mind uh, exist on its, on its, you know, exist um, will lead you to the dark side. I think that's a dangerous sentiment. I think that's, I think that's morally wrong to think that way. Um, And why I find myself not, liking the Jedi while liking the ideas of the force and the, you know, the keepers of peace. It's sort of this 
kind of back and forth with me with the Jedi. But I think what creates a Sith is this, is their anger and hate be, becoming all there is and ignoring others. Anakin set out with purely selfless hopes of, you know, protecting Padme and protecting the world. And he talks about what he wishes they would do. And slowly it starts to become what, you know, he wants them to do. Padme isn't doing what he wants. So he turns against her because it's now become all, all the, the blinders are on. Mm-hmm. He's not seeing any sort of nuance anywhere. It's only now this is against me. Now this is against me. It's the creation of paranoia. Uh, Palpatine is so inherently based in selfishness. Um, he just wants the world to be for him. Everything is a pawn for him. Um, and the Jedi, I think where they start to fail is by trying to make the world for them. Mm. You know, I think... Um, by the way, just just so we throw this out there, we know that Kylo Ren isn't a Sith. We know that. He's <laughs> just the, we, we know that. But that doesn't mean um, he isn't the central antagonist of the sequels. Um, he doesn't hold the place of the Sith. Right. Um, yes. But it's something that I think is kind of interesting is you know we do have this master and apprentice you know we have the rule of two and that is something that is reflected in the first two films of the sequels um with snoke and then we get to the rise of skywalker and we learn that snoke is pretty much palpatine but i don't think that snoke has that same like selfishness i mean he does but do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's not represented in the same way. Whereas Palpatine is doing everything to serve himself and, you know. Yes. I think that Snoke is, um, we haven't gotten clear distinction on how free thinking Snoke is. Uh, because Palpatine says, I was Snoke. I created Snoke. We don't know how much he was being controlled by Palpatine. We've seen Palpatine do batshit crazy things that we never thought that were, were possible for anyone to be able to do. Um, and so there we get this sort of character who is um, trying to create this world that is kind of essentially Palpatine's. And that's where Snoke kind of is wanting uh, true, the Skywalker blood is using, you know, Kylo Ren um, for Palpatine's game. It's kind of this, it continues on. Um, and I think after this, years later, something, whether it be some sort of reincarnation or whether it be just in the same ideals, you will get another Palpatine. That is a constant evil is constant whether it has the name palpatine or not it's the same um and i think that's sort of yeah, i mean he is the 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 devil figure that is that is what he was created to be and darth vader and kylo ren uh were not they were they were conflicted characters who um i think Again, I think it's it's wonderful what they did with uh, 
Count Dooku and with Maul and with every other antagonist, there's conflict in them. Uh, there's a conflict of, of what they can, of what they should do. I mean, Dooku is an example of a Jedi who wasn't happy with how the Jedi were doing things and went to the Sith and created the Separatists. He's not, in, he's not evil. The one, the one true evil character is Palpatine. Darth Maul isn't evil at the end uh, of his life. You get this beautiful scene with Obi-Wan where he says, I hope he avenges us. Luke being, you know, what, him and Obi-Wan were seeing as the actual chosen one. Um, he says, I hope he avenges us because he was a pawn in Palpatine's game. He lost his brother. He lost everything because he thought selfishly and ignored the fact that Palpatine was acting selfishly. You know, he thinks, oh, he, he has what he's doing, what he thinks is best for me. He never had, he never cared about you. Palpatine has never cared about any one of his apprentices, apprenti, apprentices. And I think what's super interesting about Palpatine as well is, um, you know, I mean, he is a constant through every era just about that we've seen. Um, and he, you know, he is like the, the irredeemable evil in the background, but I think that's just it. The fact that he is the irredeemable evil is just so fascinating to me mm -hmm. um, that you know, he, he does have like a, a sort of backstory in some Legends content, but it's never a sob story. It's never a villain origin story so much as it's, it's a, um, it's what? It's a story of ambition. Yeah. And like his ascension to, yeah. to where he is, but it's not becoming this evil guy so much as like, he's just climbing the rungs of the ladder. And um, I think that that is so, so fascinating to have as like, you know, uh, uh, I guess he is, um, to get a little bit meta here, he is the trope of the Sith that the people in the Star Wars universe who are attempting to become Sith, Sith attempt to emulate, if that makes anything, if yeah. that makes any sense. He's the paragon, and um, everyone else who tries to be him and all of his apprentices and whatever extension of that word you want to use, if you want to consider Kylo to be the apprentice, which I think is appropriate, they try and they fail to be Palpatine. Which is an interesting sentiment considering if we're considering his, you know, legend story, which is not too far off of, you know, what could hypothetically be canon. Right, um, it's not, not canon necessarily. Right. Um, <laughs> Canon he, until proven, not canon. He pales in comparison to some of the other Sith slash dark side entities. Mm -hmm. So there's just kind of a, if we were to sit here and make everything canon right now, like it would, it's interesting that so many people take after him when there's far more worse people that they could be emulating and perhaps well, yeah, be I mean, more successful in doing so. I guess is the same the same, the same thing. I mean, he's the same as Palpatine took over so that he could become Plagueis. I mean, and, and I guess really at, at that point, the mold for the Sith is really Darth Bane. Um, yeah. But, you know, because he was the rule of two, you know, like we, mm -hmm. that's where Palpatine got his thing. But even so, we've got Maul is Maul and Snoke and, well, Snoke is 
kind of provoked thing. But uh, Dooku and all these other people, they're not trying to, they're not going back to Bane. Uh, you know, it, it is Palpatine. Um, I, I, perhaps it's just because he had so much influence, both in politics and in the Force. But yeah, that is quite interesting. Um, and then we've got, you know, tropes that are, equally as important but not as well you know defined uh you know we've got this idea of, of these militant people or the, we've got people on the republic we've got people um and the resistance and the rebellion and then we've got people in the empire and the first order and that within these two groups we also we have this kind of consistent character of sorts that is either you know the noble officer or the antagonistic officer. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because that's something that might be overlooked. Um, I think, probably... yeah, I think the greatest, um, the greatest thing that happened to that trope in Star Wars is Rogue One. Um, I think that is, to me, where we start seeing um, the lines blur between what is what orders are good when you're when you're following them and what are bad. Um, there's a great line of, of Jin telling uh, Cassian, oh, so you follow order. You know, what's the difference between you and a stormtrooper? And, you know, it comes down to, I mean, a lot of people don't consider uh, um, blanking. They don't consider uh, Thrawn as much of a villain because he's just following orders to the the people he pledged his allegiance to. And I think uh, that's the trap, isn't it? Making those people out to be innocent um, <laughs> when it's like, oh, well, I was just following orders. Um, you know, it's, it's not as though they don't have any any agency in this situation, um, but it, it's, it's a really interesting like world. Right. No, I think, and I think it's, it's interesting to look at because um, Again, it's you choose a side. Uh, you know, you have these people who are fighting for um, order at all cost um, and control, uh, and then you have these people who are fighting for freedom at all costs. And uh, and it's again, it becomes you know, good against evil is is freedom against uh, order. You know, both things are on their own, sort of an ideal to strive for. We want, you know, order because with order, I mean, the Jedi were, the Jedi order, they were fighting for order. That can be easily seen as what, as something good. Um, and then you get, you know, the freedom, the Sith are fighting for freedom to use the force however they keep ignoring what it does to other people. Um, and you get this sort of, blurring um, where it really comes down to where you stand morally, where it's like, I will always side with the, the rebellion and the, and, and, and that idea of thinking um, just cause that's to me, that's they're fighting for what's important, but yeah, I think I digress a little bit. <laughs> um. But, you know, and you have you have a great point, and that line from Jin is is really, you know, kind of blunt, <laughs> uh, to be honest, uh, comparing the two, um, the two sides, rather. Um, 
but would you say there's like a lot of similarities between like Leia and Tarkin? Because they are kind of that role on each side. I I think I think especially when you um, especially after you see the episode uh, of the Mandalorian when we kind of get a little look into the uh, of where the empire is and seeing them in the dirty uniforms and seeing them as a ragtag group, for some reason you find yourself subconsciously rooting for them because that's recognizable. Um, you know, when they save your heroes and it's like, what, what, what is a, what are we agreeing with? Because it is the best thing that, you know, it's whatever saves our heroes, whatever side our hero is on. If we were coming up through, let's say, um, I don't know if we were coming up through Tarkin's story, the hero, the, 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 the character that gets him to the next level would be considered a hero, you know, in the story, a good guy. Uh, he's on our side. But where is our side, you know? Yeah, and um, within that, like, I was going to say, like, within that um, way of thinking, I would say that the the way that those two, like, sides of officers, I would say they're characterized rather differently. You know, mm -hmm. I think that there are different things we expect from, like, a good guy officer and a bad guy officer. So it, it's mm -hmm. interesting because Tarkin, the way that he acts it doesn't emulate like what we've come to expect from like, mm -hmm. the, you know, the Mon Mothmas and the, the Leia's um, in terms of, um, uh, you know, what, what the noble officer is and what they do. Um, so I would argue that like, almost because of who he is as a character, I don't know that he could be, you know, even if we were looking at it from his perspective, I don't know that he could be like this kind of like beacon of hope type character that the, the good guys aspire to be. Right. And there's there's also an interesting thing of when you start to see the the good guys the the rebels gain some sort of a hold on the galaxy uh, that you start to see them become the empire in Mandalorian you start to see them uh, abusing prisoners with these robots with you know electric sticks you start to see them all of our heroic uh, fighter pilots are now pulling people over like beat cops and 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 keeping the, the order not fighting for any sort of freedom um and you start to see that sort of idea of no matter what once uh or what but it's easy to lose sight of what you're fighting for um in order to keep the group that's fighting in power um and i don't think I don't think any of the groups set out to hurt people, but once they stop thinking about what it does to people, you they become villains. I think that's where you get a character like Anakin Skywalker trying to fight for the betterment of the world, ending up ending up being the worst thing that ever happened to the world, you know? Yeah. No, that's really interesting, yeah. Um, but yeah, I would like to dive into some of the, the specifics of like within, um, these military operations, 
I guess, you know, the, the people that everyone else in like the empire, everyone in the empire who's like on the officer side aspires to be, you know, Tarkin and everyone on the, um, the, the, uh, I guess we'll go with the rebel side, you know, aspires to be like Leia. Um, and uh, in the resistance, you see Poe really trying to like fill those shoes. So I, I would say that there are like certain things that are expected um, Absolutely. from 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 those like sorts of good guy officer, bad guy officer yeah. in yeah. terms of like what what the people within those operations are um, aspiring to be. But then also you get those characters that um, we are expecting to go one way and then they shoot off and they go another. And I think a great example of that um, is somebody who fulfilled that role to a T, um, well, more or less, I would say, um, and then shot off into a wildly different direction is Hux um, because he was very much the role of like, he's dead set on a goal, he's straight laced, he's vicious. He's a little bit more, I would say at, in Snoke's words, rabid than like, the the very cool and collected Tarkin that we've been exposed to, but then you know in the Rise of Skywalker he shoots off and he goes in a completely direct different direction as he sort of is is a defector at some point and um you know Callus does that as well and it, it those those sorts of like I would say when that happens it's in the newer pieces of media um, yeah and I think we start to get to a point where we're a little sick of tropes. Um, they provide comfort, but they also provide stasis and we want something to challenge us. Uh, and sometimes we really don't, um, you know, I think it's hard to talk about subverting tropes without talking about the last Jedi. Um, and while someone who, where I look at it all from, you know, a character growth aspect and a character aspect and a storytelling aspect, the last Jedi does its job incredibly, um, people who are having it sort of ex having it happen to them where they're just watching and, and on looking and they're not wanting to think critically um, or think openly. Um, you get people who are really pulled aback. But I mean, one of the great things that they do is they go, let's break down the Poe archetype, that lone fighter archetype and show you what it really means because it's a dangerous archetype. What he's actually fighting for is, you know, glory, not fighting for safety of people. That's what he has to learn is he goes from being a hero to being a leader because the war doesn't need heroes. It needs leaders. Um, and that was something that was really incredible. And I think um, with Callus and Hux, there's, there's a bit of a difference because um, Hux has the sort of realization that what he's doing is wrong. Um, and, or not Huck, Callus thinks, has the realization that what he's doing is wrong. Hux uh, realizes that, that um, siding- He's got a bone to pick. Yeah, siding with the rebels is gonna get him what he needs. If Kylo fails, he wins. You know, he's a very perfect example of the villain being in, entirely selfish. Um, and, you know, they do, they do this in a great way with, with Hux and with um, and with uh, Krennic is this desire to be um, their their version of heroes. Their you know you'll tell the emperor about me like that that idea yeah. of they want this glory. 
they want to be the best that ever was. Um, and Hux, we see it from a different point of view and it's laughable. But when we're more in his point of view, uh, seeing him strive, we see, you know, what we see in um, episode seven is we see this terrifying individual who is psychotic. And then we go to see them slightly slip up a little bit. And it's hilarious because you realize they're a rabid dog looking for attention. I mean, um, yeah, I, I'm, I am glad you brought up Krennic because that actually, I wasn't thinking, so often I forget about Rogue One and I shouldn't because it's a great film, but- um, It's probably my second favorite. Yeah, I mean, it's so good, but I, I like that you made that connection to Krennic because uh, they really do kind of have that same mentality and Krennic, I hate. He's my least favorite Star Wars villain. He's just so annoying. I cannot stand him because he has this selfish me, me, me attitude mm -hmm. that is, you know, makes him stray from what he's supposed to be, you know, serving the Empire. Um, and with Hux, I mean, I, I really do think the way his character arc ends makes sense when you're looking at it from you know taking his role in the three films into account and what he really wants but at the same time he's so terrifying and you really do think at, at first in the force awakens that you know before you see his you know relationship with ren and how he just hates him you know beyond compare um he had the potential to be a big bad personally i think that they could have gone in that direction um with his character. I think they could have gone in that direction after Last Jedi. Mm -hmm. No, for because sure. I think I mean, there's a difference between a character becoming goofy and a character being funny when they're failing and terrifying when they're doing well. Yeah, I mean, mm. they could have taken, you know, I, I do think he could have still had that selfishness about yeah. him, but that could have translated to, um, okay, I want Kylo I want Ren to fail, I'm going to overthrow him. But instead, we got, I want Kylo Ren to fail. I'm going to help the other side. Um, and, and it was not driven the same way. You know, I have not fin finished Rebels. I did not know that Callus uh, defects. I, I got ruined. That for me. Um, but <laughs> um, but I, I can already, you know, I, from the context, I can tell that he did it because he, you know, defected because he wanted to leave more. So, and then. Hux is like Hux, not a redemption arc. No, 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 no. And a lot of people were mad about that, but it, 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 I, I get, at the end of the day, it does, it does make sense. He just it makes it. sense. I think it's. <laughs> I mean, if if you think about it, it's just sort of. Yeah, I think it was a response to people not finding him as intimidating anymore after Last Jedi, which I get. But think about if if Kylo had if 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 Hux had actually shot Kylo in the moment when he tries to in Last Jedi, how much more terrifying would the galaxy be if Hux was the Supreme Leader? Honestly, I mean, he would, he would probably be more of a Palpatine than Snoke. I mean, he yeah. would have fulfilled that without being force sensitive. Um, and I think, I think, again, I think it's very clear what they did when they replaced him with Richard E. Grant, who's just inherently more imposing um and had him die they had i think i think they had him die in a very you know is so strictly character driven of someone who is so selfishly trying to help themselves that they end up hurting themselves but yeah i see what you mean yeah 
for sure. Um, but now that we have spent so much time going over these tropes and analyzing all these different characters, um, I would like to transition into some more kind of hard hitting questions um, that- These were the of, questions, see? <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, things that kind of come about when we have these discussions and if, you know, towards and if, at the end that we can ask ourselves the question that Hannah posed at the very beginning. But first I want to tackle this concept of the Mary Sue. And the male and female uh, relationships uh, to characters and this, you know, we've done so much analyzing of the hero's journey and the chosen one and, you know, the Jedi. Let's talk about Anakin and Rey and why we have this argument about <laughs> Mary Sue. And for anyone who is unfamiliar, the Mary Sue is a sort of more recently um, established or invented trope that um, it is essentially the argument is it's a female character who um, is really good at things with no explanation as to why and the thought behind it is that she's only good at things in order to establish herself as a badass woman and feminism scary that sort of is the mentality about like well they're only doing this they're only making her so good in order to have a woman be a badass, but they're not putting any work into it. So that's the argument of the Mary Sue. And people level that against Ray a lot saying, well, she didn't have as much training. She didn't have so much, she didn't have a lot of training. She shouldn't have been able to fly a ship. She shouldn't have been able to do that. Going through a laundry list of every skill Ray has and trying to um, invalidate all of it. Right. Um, and I might add just, you know, for the explanation, um, a Mary Sue also typically does have no struggles, none at all. Uh, and, you know, has no hardships, has no tragic backstory. That's another huge part, which I think definitely plays into the argument between Anakin and Rey. Uh, but Matthias, you had quite the reaction when I brought it up. So I want to hear your thoughts on this. The Mary Sue argument is a non-argument based so inherently on misogyny. There's no, to me, there's zero logical uh, conversation to be had with anyone using the argument of a Mary Sue. There's no, it's so inherently based on the idea of men dealing with the fact that everything in the world isn't specifically for them. Um, and the reason it bothers me so much is because we've seen a very clear disconnect and implicit bias when we're looking at characters like Anakin and Luke, who by all means, if the Mary Sue was any sort of real thing to be worrying about in character, the movies would have done terribly because again, the, the, there's no writing that indicates certain things. And if that, was an, if that was necessary, then most of our stories would not be holding on as well as they do. The difference is, is that when it happens to a woman and, a, and, a, and a, a, a male viewer is watching and not being able to inherently relate to their struggles or juxtapose themselves into it or to superimpose themselves into it uh, and, and uh, become a self-insert, 
uh, those things start to become more curious. We all, as, as men, we all look at Luke and we're like, yeah, he's the hero. We're him. We feel like him. Uh, we don't look at, wait, why on earth is he able to do all these incredible things that aren't explained? You know, and it's funny because I, I recently watched The Force Awakens with my dad, who's uh, a writer, and we were watching, we're like, wow, every single question we have about Ray and how she can do things is answered perfectly. So even if the Mary Sue was a logical argument, which it's not, um, they did everything in this movie to subvert that and people still have their I hate women blinders on. So when she does things, literally we see that when she goes, when he goes into Kylo Ren's, uh, when Kylo Ren goes into her mind, she is able to see what he's seeing and find out what she's doing. They explain that so explicitly. And because they're strong in the force has never been something that needed explaining until now. You ask anyone why this character can be, well, the force is on their side. The force helps you out. The force does this until it has to do with a woman. Then those arguments fall flat. Star Wars has never made sense. Literally, it's about coincidences and people being given powers and stuff. You know, it's literally the entire plot couldn't happen if it wasn't a coincidence. And people complained and they said, well, the force, it creates coincidences. It's fate. You know, so it's just frustrating to me because even though they did everything in their power to write in explanations for every single thing she does, she explains she's flown ships. She explained, we see her fight with the staff very uh, well. And obviously she was raised on a planet where she had to survive and struggle. Um, you know, it's weird for people to be so okay with Luke Skywalker knowing how to fight and knowing how to do all these things and, and fly a ship when he's literally like, who do you expect to be more uh, rounded out as a person before we meet them in a movie? A young girl who lives in some seedy city. They live in, you know, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't have any names for any of them in my head, but someone who has been within a, a, a junk trade where they need to learn how to fly or, or drive cars and do all these things, who needs to learn to survive, who needs to steal and, you know, escape and do all these things, or a kid who literally grew up on a farm. Who logically should be allowed to be good at more stuff with good at more things without insane explanations you know well, um, i think the argument there that they would level against you would be well but luke isn't good at things at the beginning and he isn't but here's here's the problem with that they like to say well you know ray shouldn't have been able to be kylo ren i would counter that with luke who had never flown an actual spaceship should not have been able to outrun darth vader in his ship who, as we know, is like the premier pilot. Yeah. Uh, Kylo Ren, th that argument to me is stupid because they give you in the writing an explanation. What is a joke and a point that they spend an absurd amount of time making in The Force Awakens? How strong this bowcaster is. There's a whole series of jokes where you see it multiple times throw people across you know, miles 
It's in the writing. It's strategically written. When I was watching, knowing writing and knowing how writing works and just knowing how film works from watching it, I go, oh, something's happening with this bowcaster. We need to keep an eye out for this bowcaster because it's going to be a major plot point. And it was in, in showing us that Kylo Ren is now insanely, um, he's now been taken from here to here because of it. Then he goes out and we find out after that he's not actually trying to kill her. So again, the Mary Sue concept has so little footing in any sort of logical uh, conversation. I don't give it a second thought. It, it, to me, it's, it's angry men who don't understand filmmaking trying to complain about something that makes them uncomfortable because it means that they might not be the lead of every single film they watch. And that's, I'll get off my soapbox. You're all good. No, I, I completely agree with you there. Um, I'm sure that any female Star Wars fan who has been made to answer for this, whether they like it or not, if you create content um, that has to do with Star Wars, would would have a similar sentiment to that. And I think that people who um, see a YouTube video about, video about this is why Ray is a Mary Sue and never hear a rebuttal, um, are the people who are you know, spewing out those arguments. And it, maybe it's not necessarily because they've come to that conclusion on their own. Perhaps they never even questioned it, but you know, they, they, the YouTube algorithm showed it to them and then suddenly this is their way of thinking. And I think that that's, you know, that's, that's really, I, it's, it's a little bit par for the course when it comes to tropes because there are um, some, sometimes like people who are miscategorized in tropes they don't belong in. Like for example, Clementine from um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is on every list of a manic pixie dream girl, even though the movie makes it very clear that People treat her like a manic pixie dream girl and she doesn't like it and she isn't one. Um, you know, like th there are, there's this tendency to um, miscategorize just based off of like, you write it on the internet. Um, and then there's also, I think in that same line of argument, there's, there's this idea of, of the trope, be a trope being like specifically for a strong woman that isn't a Mary Sue trope. It's, it, it's like a hashtag girl boss trope. Um, that's like specifically very gendered and specifically like she can't be considered the hero but she can be this other thing that's like a runner-up and like she's cool for a girl um, and you know it, there there aren't like I would say that the the girl boss trope or like the strong independent woman trope is a lot of the time you know perpetuated so to speak by women um, who are like trying to carve out a specific space for themselves but I'm curious as to what you think about like them being categorized in a way other than hero because of their gender. I think the reason that they're not is uh, because systematically um, there, there's an oppression there. There's a, there's a something that there, you can't, you can't create something in your mind like the character of a Mary Sue without having to come to terms with the fact that the reason that that would exist is because there are so few female driven movies that when a female does something a male character does, it becomes something different. Yeah, the reason that there's this kind of frustration with things like the, the girl boss or, or is quote unquote Mary Sue um, 
is again because of the lack of representation or, or stories told from that point of view that when it had takes on a different face it changes what it is which it shouldn't because for the most part um you want your main character to have some sort of a systematic struggle um luke and anakin i mean anakin starts off as a a slave um but you know you replace that character with a, a black character and now you're you know whatever pandering or or trying to make some sort of a point. George Lucas was trying to make a point. That's most, you don't want a character about some rich person who goes through no struggles. And, and, and again, there comes the idea that men are saying that Ray has no struggles where it's, it's very clear from her character that we're dealing with much more of a um, internal struggle. And uh, a lot of people don't recognize that, which Look, at the end of the day, if you think um, that losing a hand is more worthy of struggles than any sort of um, battle with identity and loss and um, lack of, of people to teach you things when you're younger or any sort of family, if you think that, those, that that's, I mean, you just kind of don't understand the human brain if, if, if that's, if that's the way you think. Um, and I think that's where a lot of men disconnect from Ray. Whereas when I watch it to me, she's the most relatable, one of the most relatable characters in the series um, because she's dealing with something so eternal, uh, internal um, and personal. And I really liked that. I liked that. And she was very set up. She was set up clearly. Everything that you should do in writing was set up so brilliantly and clearly with her character. We know exactly where she, you know, where she is. She wants to know where she comes from. She needs to learn that it doesn't matter where she comes from. It's about where she's going. That was set up in the first movie. Maz Kanata says, what you seek is not behind you. It is in front of you. And then everyone wanted to know what was behind her. Did you, you're not, it doesn't matter, you know? It doesn't matter if she's no one or if she's Palpatine. And we learn that even in, you know, even at the end of um, the movie, we, we learn that that's not what's important about her character. Uh, what's important is what she does from here on out. Um, and again, I mean, it, it, it's weird. It's such weird, it's such a weird thing to come to be angry that a character didn't get painfully hurt as much because <laughs> you didn't quite understand their emotional struggle. Um, when most women who watch the film will say, Oh, they did a great job. I re related completely. She has, there's a reason why you'll get men saying um, Anakin was the most hurt character uh, has gone through the most and women saying Ray's been the most hurt character uh, she's gone through the most. It's not because either one of them is right. It's because we experience things different as people. And sometimes, uh, and, and, and characters we relate to more specifically. It's not because either one of them goes through more struggle. It's, it's that some people latch onto Ray's struggle. Some people latch onto Anakin's struggle. Some people latch onto Luke's struggle. 
And just because you don't fully understand it doesn't mean it shouldn't be made. That's a big problem I have with a lot of straight white guys wanting to have a stranglehold on any sort of industry is men get angry when characters don't specifically resemble them. How do you think everyone else has been feeling? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you want to make sure that that stays something that you have, but no one else can have. Um, And no men goes like, Oh, most women agree with this. They must all be wrong. Not that people experience things differently because of where they're placed on the social hierarchy. Um, I think it's a, it's just, there's no, there's no logical argument here. Guys. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I, um, I think to, to sort of bring it back around to the fact that um, it has to be like a different category entirely when a woman is fulfilling a man's role. Um, yeah, I agree. It really does have a lot to do with like what we are and are not willing to accept as an audience and as an audience of, of, you know, people, um, I guess as, as uh, the film industry being like a very male run industry. Um, but I would like to sort of bring it around to what I opened with a little bit, a, a little, you know, sprinkling of, of a question that I, I've seated in your mind, um, which is, you know, um, I guess what like in Star Wars in particular, are these tropes stunting us or are they pushing us forward? big question and I mean we like to end our podcasts with big questions uh but yeah you know considering everything we've talked about tonight I mean something that I'm drawn to immediately when I think about this question is the there are some of these tropes that we've come to expect in Star Wars that make it you know make Star Wars what it is and so to some extent um you know particularly with the comedic relief um, you know, the kind of an actor, the wise old man, like some of those things. Yeah, I, I do think that we need these things in order for them to still feel Star Wars. And that might, like, I hate to say it, that almost sounds a bit gatekeepery in the sense that if we don't get that, we might be inclined to be like, well, that's not Star Wars. But I do think that there, there wouldn't be nine films if there wasn't some kind of consistent representation of some of these things. Um, so personally, I don't think there's any harm in continuing these tropes, at least not maybe not all of them, but those in particular. Um, I, I would like to maybe get away from this idea of a chosen one. I do think that that trope, uh, you know, and I think we're not seeing that as much now with current Star Wars media, you know, the Mandalorian, he's, he's not the chosen one, maybe in the sense that he is the one who has to deal with Grogu. Um, but really the chosen one, like, right. one um, define. it can be by the guy who's handing out the Death Star plans, you yeah. know, for a couple seconds whoever was holding the Death Star plans was the chosen one. (laughs) That's fair. Okay, well then a better example, I guess, would be the High Republic, because at least with the first book, we see all these, and we're kind of following the paths of many different Jedi, and they all have their goal, but they all have, you know, they're not, there's no central character in Light of the Jedi. Um, But yeah, no, I I think that there's a balance to it. 
as with all things of Star Wars. Um, but that's just my personal take on the matter. Yeah, where I sort of stand with tropes, and I actually was able to um, explore it in a film I did recently, which I will plug at the end. Um, but I think the, 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 the wonderful thing about tropes is there's a reason they exist. And most of, mostly it's because it's become those, the things that we've grown comfortable with. Um, and I think there's always, I think we run into a bit of a, a problem when we start saying what should and shouldn't be seen. I think what the most important thing to do is to uh, question them and, um, and explore them. Um, that's what George Lucas set out to do when he first started Star Wars was to explore these tropes um, and whether some of that being um, explore it in a way of which in, in a way in which we um, create something you know we go from the hero to the chosen one and that becomes an even deeper version of the the trope or we subvert it uh, with someone like Leia um, who isn't quite your your average damsel in distress and I think um, the, the one person who really uh, took on that legacy of what Star Wars was originally meant to do was um, was Ryan Johnson in The Last Jedi. I mean, he kept the idea of let's dig into what these actually mean. Um, I think it's important to look at the basis of tropes, uh, to look at where they come from and what they really mean, and to uh, sort of parallel them with stereotypes, you know, archetypes and stereotypes go hand in hand. Um, when you want to have a character that uh, you want to reveal has a little bit of a seedier backstory, but you give it to a character whose, whose actor is a race of someone who is stereotypically more shown as someone who is seedier and does certain things, you have moments where you get Poe finding out that he's basically a space drug dealer. And that comes from not um, exploring stereotypes while exploring archetypes. So I think to me, tropes can be harmful. They can be helpful. They can be anything. Um, and I think the idea is not to stray away from them, but to take a deep dive and find which ones are important and what is important in the ones that do exist because they have existed for so long, there's a reason for it. Not to say that they're inherently right and everything that's lasted for a long time is inherently right, but we do need to look at what has made them last that long. Um, and I agree with you that like, you know, they're really essential parts of, of what we have come to expect. I, and I would say, you know, a trope is only as good as the writing. And it's, there, there is a great, you know, there are great examples of a chosen one and there are really crappy examples of chosen ones. And you can have it. There's not like, I guess, one prescriptive way to fulfill any one of those tropes. You're not going to make a good movie specifically because you follow the hero's journey. Right. But make a good movie by what you add to the hero's journey. And that's what Star Wars did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, this was a very productive episode. We covered <laughs> a lot of ground and I, you know, I, 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 I shouldn't probably say this, but this was probably my favorite episode so far. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But um, yeah, thank you so much, Matthias. If you just want to both plug your movie and, um, you know, just remind everyone where we can find you. 
Okay. Yeah, uh, I am uh, Mateus Ward on pretty much all forms of social media. It's M-A-T-E-U-S-W-A-R-D. Um, and I have a film out. It actually just became uh, free to uh, Amazon Prime members. So you can watch it on Amazon Prime. And I think if you're not a member, it's like five bucks to rent it. Uh, it's a film called Relish, like the uh, condiment. Um, and it's basically um, about these, uh, this group of who um, break out of a uh, mental care facility and go on a wild adventure. And the idea of the movie was to take uh, archetypes and, and, and tropes and, and stereotypes and sort of challenge them and try and dig a little bit deeper into what they mean, uh, why each person sort of takes on these tropes and whether or not um, it's right to, to, uh, to judge a person based on, on that. Um, and it, it, it sort of is, ironically, we were talking about it and uh, you invited me on to talk about character tropes. And then I just see, oh, wow, this just became free. Like it's a <laughs> perfect synchronicity right here. But yeah, go check it out. Um, it kind of goes through the idea that no one is surface level. There's something deeper in everyone. Um, and, uh, and, uh, there's, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, Good I, I will be watching it, um, probably tonight. Um, and you all should do that as well. Mateus, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking to us today. We're so excited to have had you. And thank you everyone who is watching right now or listening on Spotify. We very much appreciate it. Um, and with that, we are off and we will be back next week to talk about Galaxy's Edge. May the force be with you. May the force be with you.